This is a conversation I had with Anthony Dapiran, uh, who is a jurist who's practiced law in China and Hong Kong for the past 20 years after originally immigrating from Australia. Uh, Anthony is a very keen analyst of the Hong Kong protests through uh, both their history, he's written a work for Penguin on the history of protests in Hong Kong, as well as a jurist. He is trained to look at the various parties involved in situations, the interests those parties have to one another, and reveal the subtext of uh, conflicts that might otherwise remain hidden. You see two threads uh, within the protests in Hong Kong that I think are critical to interrogate and address. The first would be nostalgia, where you're seeing uh, flags for the Union Jack, you're seeing flags for the Republic of China under Sun Yat-sen, you're seeing uh, even hats that say make Hong Kong great again. What I talk about with Anthony in this chat is some aspects of colonialism that were not great uh, for the Chinese majority within Hong Kong, and that this nostalgia for uh, the colonial era under the United Kingdom may be, in fact, wishing for a reality that never was for the vast majority of people. The other interest we chat about uh, looks at Hong Kong through the lens of Marx's 18th Brumaire, where we examine, essentially, a class of elites who, it's no open secret if you read the Financial Times, uh, Hong Kong is controlled between two parties, essentially, Beijing and the Hong Kong tycoons who have made billions of dollars both developing Hong Kong and then uh, developing uh, the markets and corporate interests within China. That alliance is breaking uh, as this extradition law has essentially divided these two interests. And so we talk a lot about this conflict that Marx looked at in the 18th Brumaire, where elites are essentially clamoring against a sovereign power, in this case China, to have their freedom. Freedom can mean very different things, and in this case, one aspect of that freedom is the freedom to continue ruling Hong Kong through a neoliberal economic framework that allows for a few individuals with billions of dollars of assets and capital to essentially control Hong Kong policy, to control many public spaces in Hong Kong, to control many aspects of Hong Kong life in terms of housing, services, and infrastructure that perhaps under a sovereign government, be it uh, a communist authoritarian party or a democracy that uh, had a non-neoliberal outlook on economics, might not allow them to. So for those of you interested in neoliberalism, for those of you interested in law, for those of you interested in colonialism, and for those of you interested in a general critique of why we're seeing a breakdown of world order, I think this will be a very interesting podcast that raises a lot of ideas that otherwise sort of remain hidden in the notions and narrative that the media puts forth of just this is about freedom, which doesn't really tell you much. If you like what we're doing, please check out our website, asiaarttours.com. We're interested in bringing you conversations and, of course, tours when you come to Asia with some of the most interesting academics, thinkers, and artists in Asia. All right, let's get to our chat with Anthony.
um, have been living in Hong Kong or between Hong Kong and Beijing for about uh, or over 20 years. Uh, and I've written a book about political protest and dissent in Hong Kong called uh, City of Protest, A Recent History of Dissent in Hong Kong. And that book really came out of my um, time observing, uh, writing about and photographing the umbrella movement back in 2014 here in Hong Kong. Um, I was here and, and sort of on the ground throughout that protest movement. Um, and after sort of in the context, looking back at that, I, I saw that there was, you know, clearly a, a long and rich history of, of political protest in dissent in Hong Kong that warranted some deeper investigation. And that was how I went, uh, came, came about um, writing the book. And just for people who've been living under a rock, which um, in my country, there's a lot of homelessness. So that's possible. That's no longer just a turn of phrase. What have been the recent uprisings in Hong Kong about in terms of how they're covered in the media? And would you want to add any subtlety or nuance that you might not get if you're just reading about the protests through uh, a newspaper or just seeing them on cable news? Mm. So what has prompted the uh, the couple of really big protests that Hong Kong has seen over the last week, which was uh, you know a, a million people or so on the streets on uh, Sunday the 9th of June, um, uh, tens of thousands if not more on the streets the Wednesday the 12th of June, um, and then a reported 2 million or so on the streets the, the immediate following Sunday the, the uh, 16th of June. Um, those protests were all about the government's proposal to introduce a new law in Hong Kong which would have enabled uh, criminal suspects to be extradited to mainland China and indeed elsewhere in the world to stand trial. Um, and people in Hong Kong um, felt very strongly about uh, this blurring of the line between the Hong Kong and the mainland judicial systems um, and this potential infringement on, on their rights and freedoms. Um, the fact that the government tried to rush through this law without a full and proper public consultation and without a full and proper legislative scrutiny of the law didn't help. And that really angered people, uh, as did uh, the Hong Kong chief executive, Carrie Lam's fairly uh, patronizing and haughty attitude in her public statements about this issue to the media and so on. And all of those things combined really led to, to a, a, a very large outpouring of public protest that we, that we saw. Um, in terms of the, you know, the, 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 the media narrative obviously, you know, focuses on, on, um, you know, the, the, the very large numbers of people out in the streets and also focusing obviously on the, on the police violence on, on Wednesday. Um, and I think overall they, they tend to have got the, the story F fairly right, at least in the sense that you know the protests on the, the two Sundays were were very large, very peaceful. Um, clearly, a strong sense of community and solidarity among the people taking part, um, and uh, you know I think that, that the coverage has has. has captured that spirit pretty well. And I think also that the coverage of, of the police violence on, on Wednesday has, seems to have captured the spirit fairly well. Now, of course, the official government narrative has been that they were, you know, rioters and, and unruly violent protesters that the police were suppressing that day. Um, but I, I think that the, that the media generally has 
you know, shown that that's, that's not the case and that the media generally has taken the position that the police use of force was excessive, not least because the media themselves were caught up in the front line and there are numerous reports of the police, you know, attacking, if not, you know, attacking the media, if not at the very least being, having reckless disregard for the safety of the media representatives there. So I think there's a fair bit of anger from the media as well as um, Hong Kong's wider community about the way the police um, behaved that day. Um, what, one interesting thing that's been sort of the, the media narrative um, going back over several years that I think they have gotten wrong and it's just sort of this idea of, of the death of protest in Hong Kong or otherwise and this sort of stretches back to the umbrella movement. Um, so after the umbrella movement you know, quote unquote failed and we can talk a bit about that if you like later about whether it indeed failed or not but certainly after the umbrella movement protesters failed to achieve their stated goals and, and sort of disbanded without having achieved anything. And then in the subsequent years, as the Hong Kong government gradually tightened the screws on dissent in Hong Kong, people started to ask the question, you know, is, is protest in Hong Kong dead? Um, you know, the, the, the government's taking all these measures, people aren't coming out onto the streets anymore, you know, the umbrella movement failed, have people just given up? Um, and, and my view, whenever I was asked that question, was, you know, it, it just it, it wait for the right issue to come. And, and when an issue comes up that the Hong Kong people feel strongly about, I'm sure that they'll they'll be out again. Um, and as it turned out, this issue of the extradition law was was the issue that galvanised community feeling again and, and brought them out onto the streets some some five years later and really showed that that spirit of spirit of public protest is, is far from dead in Hong Kong. China has before um, extradited or kidnapped figures much along the lines of how the U.S. does extrajudicial kidnapping. Um, you can be black bagged under a myriad of different contexts. Now, how the U.S. context for that, it's tend to be framed under sort of terrorism, whereas for China, it's, it's uh, sedition might be uh, a, a good way to frame how extraditions from Hong Kong or uh, dissidents uh, for China have occurred in the past. My question is, as a U.S. citizen, I've just sort of internalized this reality where if I screw up in some way, I don't know how I could, but, you know, you just get black bagged and there's not a lot you can do. Um, and China has behaved this way in the past as well. Why would they take the the risk of codifying something that I think a lot of people had internalized and sort of erupting this this firestorm of protest for something they could have done without this legal codification. You make a very good point, and there are concrete examples of precisely that in recent years. Um, there's, of course, the, the very well-known case of the, the, the booksellers um, in which China uh, abducted um, a number of um, publishers and booksellers um, who had been involved in publishing books that were, were critical of, of the Chinese leadership and the Chinese government. Um, a few of them were taken from the streets of Hong Kong. One of them, most notably, um, Gui Minhai, who himself is a Swedish citizen, was taken from Thailand, um, taken back to China. Um, another recent example was a, a mainland businessman, Xiao Jianhua, who was uh, abducted from his suite at the Four Seasons Hotel in Hong Kong and taken back to the mainland. So certainly you're, you're quite right. Just like the US, China has the ability and has shown it is willing in the past to take someone if they want them. Um, they've also attempted to do it with, um, in particular, uh, fugitives from their anti-corruption crackdown in countries around the world, including uh, Canada and Australia, I believe, as well. So um, you're, you're quite right. Why would they bother trying to, to codify a practice that they are willing to engage in if they want to? Um, I think it's um, 
there's certainly the possibility, and this seems to be um, some fairly well-sourced reporting seems to be pointing in the direction that this didn't necessarily come from Beijing. Um, you know, the, all along, the official line from Beijing and from the Hong Kong government has been that this was an initiative of, of, of Carrie Lam and the Hong Kong government themselves, and this is not something that, that Beijing was, was asking them to do or forcing them to do. Although, of course, once they floated the idea, they, they were very happy to throw their weight behind it because, you know, if, if it was being offered to them, why not take it? Now, people were sort of you know, looking at how realistic is that given how ineptly this has been handled, given the way in which you know, the Hong Kong government has been trying to, to, put, to ram this through, you know, turning a completely deaf ear to all community sentiment. That's got all the hallmarks of, of, of the way Beijing does politics. It doesn't have the hallmarks of the way a, a, a practiced and seasoned Hong Kong politician would go about doing things. But at least from the what seems to be fairly well-sourced reporting over the recent days, um, you know, th that narrative does seem to be holding up, that, that, that this was a, a huge miscalculation or just misunderstanding by by the Hong Kong authorities themselves, which then, you know, Beijing were, were happy to support, but by all accounts, were also the ones who told the Hong Kong government to back down when in the face of these protests. Looking at it from the people's point of view, you know, you, you, again, you're quite right. Why are people so upset about it when they know that it happens anyway? Um, I think there are a, a couple of things. Firstly, you know, it risks legitimizing a, a process that they don't see as legitimate. So if they're abducting people off the streets, you know, it's it's something that you know everyone recognizes is 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 a bad thing. Whereas if it's being done through the Hong Kong courts and the Hong Kong legal system with its much vaunted rule of law, suddenly that puts this sort of um, you know veneer of legitimacy on all of those activities. I think that's something that that people objected to this sort of use of the judicial system for for, for political purposes. The second thing I think people were worried about is just that it, it changes the the scale upon which these things can be done. I think, you know, that the, the uh, Beijing kidnapping, you know, the odd one or two person over a number of years off the streets of Hong Kong is, is one thing. If they were doing it at scale, that would, really, you know, I think draw some major international attention and concern. Um, and so I think people felt, you know, just the fact that, you know, with this official channel, it could happen much more easily and in much greater numbers. But then I think finally, it's just really the, the symbolism of the whole thing, of, of the fact that, you know, Hong Kong, under the one country, two systems formula has um, always been seen as a as a safe haven from the rest of China. Uh, it's always very much treasured the the rights and freedoms that it does enjoy that that, that the rest of China does not enjoy, um, and it. It, there's a, a very strong and visceral reaction against anything that 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 appears to blur the lines or to you know wind back on those freedoms in any way. And this is just one of those issues where people said, you know, we don't we don't like this because it, it it's threatening the the things that that makes Hong Kong Hong Kong. It's it's threatening the um you know those rights and freedoms that that, that sort of a core to our identity. And I think that's you know they're the sort of the factors that were feeding into people's um, people's reactions here. It reminds me of um, sort of Marx's 18th Brumaire, where the Hong Kong business elite, who um, Hong Kong is one of the most unequal societies uh, in Asia, and I, I believe on Earth. Um, I was trying to find the most accurate Gini coefficient for Hong Kong, but I believe it's second. Second in the world in terms of the standard measurement economists use for measuring inequality. Marx's 18th Brumaire comes up because the Hong Kong business elite for a long time had a sort of sovereign that they could use as a way to expand their empires, their sort of internal empires within Hong Kong in terms of things like uh, the buildup of private property, the financialization of 
spaces that had once uh, been for the public. There weren't really formal structures for redress. And more importantly, as long as big business was willing to cooperate with Beijing, um, you wouldn't, they wouldn't set up the government in a way that it would be um, hostile to the interests of big business. So you had this sort of mutual, uh, mutually beneficial arrangement between the Communist Party and big business in Hong Kong. This law comes up and then all of the sudden, in a way that we've said is very clumsily and perhaps that that's due to that they didn't initiate this, this doesn't have sort of the slick veneer of how they've tried to handle these things in the past. All of a sudden, sovereignty is a real issue. And the business community, as the, the Financial Times reported today, is panicking. They are freaking out. And you have these other hubs of sort of neoliberal finance in Asia licking their chops because it's a signal to the business community, your money is not safe, your capital is not safe. Come to this new sovereign, sort of this Louis Bonaparte, <laughs> Napoleon III, where you have this new sovereign, there's no democracy here, you don't have to worry. So that framing has really troubled me, where it, it appears in a, a sort of neoliberal, the era of neoliberalism that we live in, which I, I don't think is up for debate in a lot of ways, whether you like neoliberalism or not. I think we're in an age of neoliberalism, where you have a sovereign trying to assert its authority again, and uh, essentially... You have all these, these uh, large interests in Hong Kong panicking about that. I'm sorry the question had to be long, but it's complicated. Are people framing the analysis uh, in this way? Are any of the protesters or any of those who want sovereignty connecting it also to this issue of, yes, we want political sovereignty in order to uh, assert our economic democracy, um, in order to sort of control these policies that have been introduced during Hong Kong's neoliberal period post-basic law of um, reasserting the right to for public housing, reasserting the rights to definancialize areas that Beijing has allowed the business tycoons of Hong Kong to, to um, go into. Has the framing I discussed come up? What would be your own analytical lens of this battle of the sovereign versus the neoliberals? And how do you see this um, playing out in the uh, near-term future? That is a, a really fantastic um, analysis. Um, so, yeah, I mean, thanks for, for, for really digging into all that nuance. And you're, you're right, it, it hasn't been um, deeply explored in, in, in either among the, the, the activist community or, or the media here. I, I mean, there's a, a couple of, you know, I guess, reactions that immediately spring to mind. Um, the, the, the first is that, as you're quite right, Hong Kong um, you know, is basically ruled on the basis of a, um, a, a an understanding, if you want to call it that, a, a, an alliance, a conspiracy even, between the, you know, the, the, the Beijing authorities and the Hong Kong tycoons. Um, that was sort of, in a way, the, the the deal that was reached, the basis on which you know Hong Kong was was going to be handed back and governed, was that it would continue to be governed, you know, by and for the benefit of the plutocrats, by of the tycoon class, um, you know, sort of in alliance with in alliance with Beijing, and as long as you know their interests were um, 
were aligned um, or weren't contradictory, then that all would work would work fine. You know, Beijing would would worry itself with sort of the the political side, and the tycoons were happy with with the economic side. The the, the kind of the, the the result of that has been that that Hong Kong has never been ruled for the benefit of its own people. Um, it's it. Carrie Lam, the chief executive, is appointed by a you know Beijing-friendly tycoon-dominated election committee of 1,200 people. The the legislature, which, which which really you know largely has only a rubber stamp function anyway, but the legislature is is again um, structurally designed such that it's always going to be dominated by pro-Beijing parties. Um, and as a result of that, the government is not elected, selected by the people, has no mandate from the people, and does not. Um, operate in a way, you know, to benefit the people. It operates in a way to benefit the people from whom it got its mandate, which is the tycoon class and Beijing. That has led to all sorts of um, quality of life and governance issues in Hong Kong, including the ones that you mentioned, the social inequality, um, the, the, the housing issue here is obviously a, a huge problem. Um, access to public health is increasingly becoming a problem. Um, social welfare and all those sorts of things is, is, is really, you know, and, and even just down to the very basics of the way public spaces, and you alluded to this earlier as well, but the way public space is, is, is managed and, and the way public facilities are provided um, for people in Hong Kong is, is always with a mind to, for example, the interests of property developers rather than the interests of the communities enjoying and making use of public space. So in so many ways, you know, you know Hong Kong is, is not governed for the benefit of its own people. It, it, it's, and, and so this is one of the, I think, one of the fundamental factors driving, you know, discontent among the Hong Kong people and one of the things that ultimately drives them out to protest. And and what is sort of ironic or, or, or sad in this particular case is that it, it's only when those that discontent or the interests of the general populace overlap with the interests of the tycoons. And in this case, they were, were you know, paranoid about themselves being at risk of extradition to China as a result of, you know, their own business dealings and activities in mainland China and, and situations where someone who had uh, previously been a patron suddenly finds themselves um, exposed to a, an anti-corruption investigation, for example, and then suddenly the, the, the people who bribed them are also, you know, called in for arrest and all those sorts of situations. So in this case, when the interests of the tycoons and the ordinary people suddenly align, that's when you you get a mass movement with broad support that 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 really you know affects change. In this case, we was successful in winning the change that they wanted, and it's a it's a, it's sort of the tragedy of the Hong Kong people that, that that's the only circumstances in in which that happens. And you know when there's other more you know sort of more fundamental problems that they're dealing with, such as you know the demands for greater democracy in in, in 2014 or or these broader social issues that they don't get the traction um, and don't don't end up being you know prevailing over over the authorities i think i mean the, the question of sovereignty is also a really a really important one you know and of course the direct comparison that's always made is is hong kong and singapore um, and one thing that you often hear is you know people saying well you know singapore is not so free either and you know singapore's got these issues and and, and you know so at least for, for some of the apologists in hong kong so they say well why is it such a bad thing if Hong Kong ends up a bit more like Singapore. I mean, I think that, that sovereignty is really the key difference, that, you know, Singapore in the end is still its own sovereign state, um, and Hong Kong is not. You know, when it, when it comes down to it, Hong Kong has always been and still is a colony. Um, 
it's it, it, it's governed you know by a colonial government um, whose you know primary aim is to is to maintain the stability of the colony and and, and the prosper prosperity of the colony for the benefit of of the colonizing power um, and so the people don't have sovereignty they don't have any hand in their own ultimate fate um, and and the the government is not run for their benefit you know Milton Friedman this was his wet dream Hong Kong was you know I think he you know he called it like the perfect government. I think at certain points, because he thought just how little government there was was perfect. Um, I'm wondering, from your experience as a jurist who's who's worked uh, within both Hong Kong and China, a lot of liberals in the Ameri in America right now hang their hats on you know the rule of law. That law, you know, is is this sort of uh, all-purpose force that can stand up to any amount of power. I do not share those views as someone who had to live under the Bush administration and then a lot of the developments that I've seen related to both neoliberalism and um, the uh, expansion of the security state. If we look at these issues we've talked about of political democracy versus economic democracy, a vote doesn't matter you know, if you don't have any say over the economics of the country you live in. How does the rule of law still have power in Hong Kong in this era of uh, both China and big business dominating its various uh, judicial mechanisms, and where does the rule of law fail and we would need something like a true democracy to address some of these issues of inequality or that you can't get redressed through the court system under certain circumstances in uh, Hong Kong currently? Currently, uh, and there are, there are plenty of threats to this, but currently I, I still see the rule of law in Hong Kong as as reasonably healthy. Um, and what really is safeguarding it is the the judiciary. And the, the, the in particular the, the judiciary's independence is is still not under question in Hong Kong. And I think most importantly the the Court of Final Appeal, which is sort of the, the, the highest court in Hong Kong, the Supreme Court, um, has a great deal of integrity that all the judges that sit on that court um, are very Fine jurists and and people of integrity and 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 certainly people who guard their independence and see their role safeguarding Hong Kong's rule of law as very important. I always watch the judicial appointments process very closely to see if there's any sign that that has been undermined or influenced politically in any way. And, and so far, we haven't seen that. But that's something that I do keep a constant watching brief over. And that, all of that said, there are certainly other threats to rule of law in Hong Kong. Um, and, and two. Two, I think I'll point out one that that's fairly uh, common around the world, and one that's particular to Hong Kong. The one that's common around the world is just simply access to justice, and as is the case in in you know many Western liberal democracies as well. Um, you know, you buy access to justice. Um, you know, the people who can afford afford the lawyers, the people who can afford to fund cases and see them through are the people that 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 prevail. Um, and there are many people who cannot afford access to justice, and so they they don't get it. Um, justice is essentially purchased, and that's the case, sadly, in Hong Kong, as it is, you know, many other most other places, I dare say in the world. Um, the, the second threat is the way that the government interacts with the justice system. So something that we saw in particular over, the um you know the course of the the last five years since the umbrella movement is the way that the government has pursued and prosecuted and sought to imprison various activists. Now you know prosecution decisions um, are are 
uh, are government administrative decisions, you know, deciding who you're going to prosecute, what you're going to charge them with, and what kind of sentence you're going to ask the court to impose, um, is, is, is a complex calculus. And it's been very controversial in Hong Kong because the government has been pursuing prosecutions against people, um, you know, who, who probably shouldn't be prosecuted. I mean, certainly, for, you know, the protest leaders who, were, who, who basically are being prosecuted for, for, for political crimes, for organizing political rallies. And, and, and so the way that the government has been using the legal system to, you know, to target and prosecute dissent is very concerning. And when those cases come before the courts, um, you know, in some cases, um, you know, the, some of the judges have made, um, you know, fairly political statements in the course of issuing their judgments, which are which are concerning. Um, but as those cases go up on appeal, those the the higher courts, thankfully, do um do overturn or reverse some of those decisions. But often, you know, courts' hands are tied if a if a, if a, the government prosecutors seek to bring a case against someone and they can present um, evidence that that sort of ticks all the boxes that are on the statute books, so sometimes a, a court, um, even though it doesn't want to do so, is effectively forced to forced to sort of render the decision that on paper it looks like they should do. Um, and 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 so often, you know, a lot of these these decisions around prosecutions is is where you know justice comes into the equation rather than you know by the time it actually reaches reaches the court doorstep. Um, so that's been a really big concern. And then of course, the third the third threat to Hong Kong's rule of law is is the the mainland um, and the way the mainland seeks to influence. Hong Kong's legal system. Now, the main way it does that is through its interpretations of the basic law, which is Hong Kong's constitution. Um, they've done that a number of times over the years, and most notably in the oath-swearing controversy um, uh, back in 2016, where um, uh, some of the pro-democracy legislators um, uh, took various creative protest actions in the course of swearing their oaths of office. And Beijing leapt on the opportunity to pretty much unilaterally issue what they called a reinterpretation of the basic law, which or an, an interpretation of the basic law, which they are empowered to do so. But this interpretation was basically writing wholesale, whole new requirements into the law that hadn't existed before um, and applying them retroactively. And then that law was then um, uh, used by the Hong Kong government, or that interpretation rather, was then used by the Hong Kong government to disqualify eight pro pro-democracy legislators from their office. So this sort of weaponization of the judicial system really does um, undermine uh, rule of law in Hong Kong. Um, you know, if it happens once or twice, people get concerned. If it starts to happen any more than that, then that really undermines the whole system and, and really does pe cause people to cause you know call into question. You know whether you know rule of law in Hong Kong uh, e exists in any detail anymore. I would, for questions of ru of rule of law, I would highly recommend a, a report um, produced by a, a, a civil society group here in Hong Kong called the Progressive Lawyers Group. Um, they conducted a, a very thorough and detailed review of the state of the rule of law in Hong Kong for the year of 2018, and, and published that report at the beginning of this year. And that that goes through all the different. Um, incidents that have sort of questioned or undermined or threatened the rule of law in Hong Kong in the, in the past 12 months and, and analyzes them in, in great detail. And it really does paint a, a very clear picture of, of the current threats to rule of law in Hong Kong. Over and over in studying Hong Kong's history is this very bizarre tension between sort of colonialism, the proletariat and the Hong Kong elite. Um, who oftentimes uh, the, the British, when they had a much more heavy handed or obvious uh, presentation of, of colonial governance in Hong Kong would use them as sort of intermediaries with a community wh who they couldn't speak the language and oftentimes had, had sort of racist 
and imperialist attitudes towards. When it comes to the idea of freedom and sovereignty in Hong Kong now, when we look at historically figures like Ho Kai or Chou Shou-sun or Robert Coatwell, this tension that again, like Franz Fanon would have loved Hong Kong, where you have these uh, Hong Kong Chinese capitalists supporting the colonial state over um, proletariat issues of fair access to transport, low wages, low housing. Ho Kai in particular is a great example of he was a landlord. So I'm wondering, um, when we look at things like the umbrella movement, we see the business community getting wary too of certain uh, demands or certain zeitgeist that you can feel in Hong Kong at that time of sort of a different set of democracy. I'm wondering if, if let's say, let's hope that Hong Kong can get to a point of sovereignty at some point that looks different than the basic law or um, the mini constitution it has now. Do you see within either the rule of law or within these groups that there will need to be sort of a secondary fight over what democracy means? Does that mean the same thing if you're an elite in Hong Kong or if you're at the lowest rung of society uh, currently? I do think the the failure of, of Hong Kong's um, activist community and pro, pro-democracy um, activists to to dig into this issue and, and to, to, to use this issue as, as one of the bases for bases for them to, to, to build their, their power and influence in society is really a great, a great failing. Um, during the umbrella movement that you mentioned, and this is a, a good sort of starting point, we saw um, sort of two factions emerging. There was the, the, the student protest led by you know uh, Joshua Wong and his scholarism group and the Hong Kong Federation of Students um, down in Admiralty um, and they were very focused on uh, and perhaps you know not not surprisingly for a group of university students very focused on you know the the, the technical um, legal theoretical you know uh, principle I you know questions of, of democracy and what form it should take and what universal suffrage meant and and sort of having referendums and all these sorts of fairly high-minded ideals. Um, in Mong Kok, on the other side of the harbour, in a much more working class district of Hong Kong, um, firstly, there were no centralised leadership. It was a far more organic grassroots movement there. And they were quite um, dismissive um, of the, the student leaders in Admiralty. Um, and secondly, their concerns were, were much more broad based. And up there, you did see um, you know, uh, posters and flyers and discussions of things like um, you know, housing and social justice and um, you know, labour rights and these sorts of issues. Issues. And the, the, the student leaders you know, only, you know, all, at the very end of the movement, when it was really too late, only then began to realize that they needed to reach out more broadly into the community and, and to start to think about some of these issues. Um, and, 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 but they never really engaged in them. Um, and I always sort of at the time felt that if, if these 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 issues, you know, of of concern to 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 the the ordinary, you know, working class community in Hong Kong was somehow brought within the scope of the protest movement. Um, then it had the power to be something much larger, um, and that's something that you know I, I think is is 
is slowly beginning to take hold among the activist community in Hong Kong. It's not there yet, but in the last week in particular, there were um, a, a couple of things I saw that, that made me wonder whether they are, um, they're starting to, to, to look in this direction. The first is there were calls for, for general strike on, on last Wednesday, when, which was when the bill was due to be presented to the Legislative Council, the day of the, the, the police, um, police attacks on protesters. Um, there was wide calls for a general strike in Hong Kong. Um, now, because the the largest labor union groups in Hong Kong are all pro-Beijing, Communist Party controlled or affiliated groups, the labor unions did not get behind that call. But many, many small and private businesses did. And even many large corporations um, sort of winked their support for the strike by saying things like, and this is coming from the big banks and, and accounting firms and insurance companies and so on, um, uh, we understand there may be some disruptions tomorrow, so we're happy for people to adopt flexible working arrangements. You know, you can work from home or whatever, which is really code for if you uh, don't want to come to work tomorrow, we, we're not going to have a problem with that, um, which is kind of as far as Hong Kong gets in, in terms of strike action. And But certainly a lot of people did, you know, didn't turn up to work on, on, on that Wednesday. Wednesday. And so, you know, th there's been continued calls for perhaps trying to get some momentum behind strike action to try and, you know, to, to try and, and undermine some of those, those, those business interests in, in Hong Kong. And the other thing that we've heard calls for is calls for boycotts um, of companies and businesses owned by the pro-Beijing business lobby. And there's been some lists circulating online of businesses that uh, are owned or controlled by various pro-Beijing business people and calling on consumers to, to basically boycott those companies and their products and services. Again, something that hasn't been tried on scale before in Hong Kong, but if it was, um, you could see something that could be quite, uh, you know, potentially quite powerful. Um, so, you know, there, there are things that, 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 you know, I think, you know, are ways that, that the Hong Kong activist community could start to sort of start to engage in some of these issues that you just mentioned um, that haven't done in the past. And, um, but it's something that, you know, as this protest movement unfolds, and to be clear, you know, it, it is an ongoing protest movement. It's, it's not over um, now that the government have wound back the extradition bill. There's still discussion and calls for more protests and activist groups planning next steps. This is something that they may adopt as they do that. Not to bring up the 18th Brumaire again, you know, I think it's absolutely critical that, that there is an analytical lens and it's interrogated. It doesn't mean uh, it's the correct one of the, of the business interests in Hong Kong acting very opportunistically about this, that they see something that's a direct threat to uh, their capital, so they'll preach uh, they'll sing to the high uh, heavens about democracy and freedom and, and so on and so forth. And then when bills like this are repealed, they'll go back to the business of usual as sort of dominating Hong Kong like kings. In terms of how you've looked at protests like uh, the Umbrella Movement and uh, the 2003 uh, protests about, uh, I believe, the implementation of basic law formally um, in Hong Kong, can we see that the, this sort of behavior now is opportunistic because of these fears we've talked about of capital and capitalists being able to have a sovereign placed over them in terms of if their conduct isn't pro-Beijing? In 2014, were the business interests singing a slightly different tune as the riots? Or, I mean, and that's another 
great term to examine too, as the protests which slowly became riots in the terminology of uh, business papers that were controlled by corporate interests and the actions of the protesters went from ones that were supported to those that were unruly and dangerous. Can we see um, if we are subtle and we look at these uh, protests historically from uh, 2003 maybe to 2014, that the business interests at the time were not always marching arm in arm with the protesters and may have even been at times opposing some of what they were demanding. Clearly, when the business interests are aligned as they were with this extradition law uh, protest and back in 2003 with the so-called Article 23 protest, and, and there it was actually a pro-Beijing political party, the Liberal Party led by James Tian, that, that, that sort of them throwing their weight behind the protests that that that, that sort of led to the success. Um, you know, w when their interests are aligned, then we we see one outcome. When they are, you know, uh, I guess indifferent to opposed, you know, such as there were in the umbrella movement, we may see a different outcome. And certainly, when there are, are interests that are very strongly, you know, pro-business, um, protesters will invariably lose out. And I'm thinking there about protests that there have been against various, um, you know, property development projects in support of Hong Kong heritage, such as the the destruction of the Star Ferry Pier and Queen's Pier, or the destruction of Wedding Card Street in in Hong Kong, another notable uh, in Wan Chai, another notable heritage site. Um, you know, when the interests of of the developed the property developing, you know, moneyed class are pitted against um, activist interests. The activists always tend to lose, and it's only perhaps you know when either it's not entirely only when the businesses support them that they win. Because when business is sort of indifferent, I think they also tend to see some success. So, for example, the the, the anti-national education campaign led by Joshua Wong back in two thousand and twelve, um, I think that the business community were, were you know sort of in, indifferent to that to that particular movement, and, and that again saw saw some success. So, you know, there's, there's, um, you know, there, there, there's clearly, uh, you know, the business community has, has a role to play in, in the way that, that protest unfolds and, and is successful or not successful in Hong Kong. But you know, I think really fundamental to all of the protests, at least, and what sort of drives them are underlying questions of Hong Kong identity. And I, and I sort of see that across all the protests, um, um, you know, the, in one way or another, they are protesting either in support of um, Hong Kong identity, for example, the, the heritage sites that they don't want destroyed, or, or, or uh, against any threats to that unique Hong Kong identity and things like the extradition law that were threatening sort of the rights and freedoms that people see as fundamental to their identity as Hong Kongers. So uh, I, I really do see you know, this, this issue of Hong Kong identity as the thing that, 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 that drives and motivates people to protest in Hong Kong. In terms of when we look at uh, Hong Kong and its nostalgia, nostalgia can be extremely dangerous. We see the Union Jack uh, being featured in protests. We see the Republic of China flag uh, being featured in protests. And I think it's fair to say that's not that does not uh, reflect, I think, a very nuanced critique of what history was like for many Hong Kong people. Uh, during those those various moments. Are you starting to see in the protests not a demand for the nostalgia of either a neoliberalism that left people mostly alone or a nostalgia for colonial rule? Are you starting to see identities or demands that are completely new, that don't look to the past, but instead to uh, a new Hong Kong identity, one based maybe on 
pluralism, um, freedom of expression, but also on ideas that have not historically been part of Hong Kong. You're right. Nostalgia is a really key part of not just Hong Kong politics, but Hong Kong culture generally. And indeed, I've written a whole essay on this for for the Cha Asian Literary Journal. Um, uh, Nostalgia has played a huge part in in consumer culture in Hong Kong, in um, its cinema and literature um, and arts. And it it does drive a a large part of of contemporary Hong Kong culture. But you're also quite right that nostalgia, by its definition, you know, backward looking, um, does not, you know, necessarily provide models for how we want society to be in the future. Um, and, you know, there have been um, groups emerging that have been proposing um, new models, um, and they have been extremely controversial because many of those have been proposing um some degree of self-determination for Hong Kong through to outright independence. Um, Now, the government has banned the pro-independence Hong Kong National Party. Um, Some of the leaders of that movement have been put in jail. Um, Edward Leung for his role in the so-called Mong Kok fishball riots in 2015. Um, And those sorts of expressions of of, of modeling a a new kind of Hong Kong a new kind of Hong Kong society are seen as extremely dangerous by the authorities in Beijing. So it's interesting that many of these these young idealistic um, uh, activists coming up and, and sort of proposing these sorts of ideas um, are, are cracked down extremely uh, harshly by by the authorities. Now I should add that you know these are ideas that don't currently at least have widespread acceptance through the Hong Kong community. And I think certainly if you you know sort of spoke to the the community broadly um you know they would all say that um that you know independence is not something that's 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 either practical or necessarily desirable for hong kong um but you know i think it, it's it's important that you know yeah, you know, you know, I think all, all of us would, would agree in sort of the principles of freedom of speech and, and the freedom to discuss really any ideas or models that people wish to discuss. And, but the, the sense that you know this is you know one of the this is sort of the idea that that is gaining traction at least among the younger generation, um, and that they're feeling some despair that that their ideas are not are sort of being repressed by the authorities. I think helps to drive a lot of the um the, the pessimism among the younger generation in Hong Kong and and the and that lack of of other models for a for a hopeful future for Hong Kong. I mean the model that the the, the government and the authorities obviously drive are, are models of greater integration with China. Um, and so we see um, constant reiteration of this so-called Greater Bay Area idea coming from the government. Um, that Hong Kong will form part of this greater Bay Area with Shenzhen and Guangzhou and Macau and, and the, the rest of southern China um, and, and be sort of a, a one of a number of hubs in this large sort of economic zone. Um, and that's something that, you know, obviously, perhaps from a business and economic point of view, Hong Kongers find attractive, but not from a cultural point of view. That's not a future that I think many Hong Kongers necessarily see themselves in. Um, and so there really is, you know, I think a, you, you touch on a really very important point that, that, that this lack of, of ideation of a, of, a, of a future for Hong Kong is what's driving, um, you know, malaise among the younger generation of Hong Kongers. And, and, and in many senses, you know, one of the things that's pushing them out of the street, um, out, out onto the street, rather, sort of just, just, just despair at what the future might hold for them and, and some attempt, any attempt to, to take control of that. We see John, uh, John Cowperwaith, who was the financial secretary uh, during sort of the halcyon days of neoliberalism, according to uh, Friedman, 
uh, in Hong Kong. During that time, we saw a series of riots. I believe the Star Ferry protests uh, were during that time and related riots about the living conditions in Hong Kong. And then we see sort of a completely different, much more Keynesian, even socialist policies, not in terms of uh, racial recognition, still very racist, still very colonial, but Murray uh, McLeos introduced a series of policies about housing, um, improving infrastructure, improves, improving access to health care, and so on. Uh, and this period uh, from Hong Kong historians, uh, depending on their leaning, is looked upon very fondly. I wanted to ask, um, based on the protests that we've seen under, uh, I think it's fair to say, a neoliberal administration of Carrie Lam uh, in cooperation with Hong Kong tycoons on the Legislative Council, do you think we'll see a response that pushes back on um, neoliberalism? Or do you think that this will remain just sort of like a blah, we don't really want to interrogate these larger tensions. We just want to, we want to make Hong Kong great again. We want to go back to the nostalgia of a Hong Kong that, that didn't really exist, but we didn't have to deal with these larger questions of sovereignty. Yeah, it's interesting in, in a world that sort of seems to see increasingly emerging, you know, the, the two models of either, you know, a, a democratic illiberalism or undemocratic liberalism. Um, Hong Kong has always fallen on the side of undemocratic liberalism. And that partly, I think, is 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 what puts it in, in its current predicament. But um, no, you're quite right that, um, you know, that the, the Hong Kong government has and the Beijing authorities ultimately have two way of two ways of reacting um, you know, put it very bluntly, sort of the, the carrot or the stick. Um, and, and the last few years since the umbrella movement, they have really opted for the stick um, in terms of cracking down on, on dissent and tightening the screws on all of these um, activists and their supporters in Hong Kong. And, and maybe they might see this as an opportunity or a time to to turn you know somewhat to the carrot and and and, and the same way that the government did after the 1966-67. Um, unrest here in Hong Kong under the British and also after 2003 um, protests as well. Um, they decided to try and um, buy Hong Kongers' love, if you want to put it that way, um, through various incentives and, and, and social programs and welfare programs and, and, and business incentives and preferential treatment for Hong Kong businesses on the mainland through the, the Closer Economic Partnership Agreement. And, you know, there, there may be a, a turn in that direction, perhaps. Um, certainly, they, they seem to be dialing back the rhetoric in terms of um, the way they're characterizing the protests and, 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 you know, indeed, possibly even the way they're going to, to, to follow up any prosecutions after last Wednesday's unrest as well. So, you know, it would be, it would be, it would be, I think, you know, obviously a, a good thing for Hong Kong if, if the government stepped back a little bit. I mean, I think one of the problems that, that Hong Kong's always faced is that, um, you know, the, the government is so, interventionist in all aspects of life, which is quite ironic. It sort of, you know, has this reputation as, you know, a sort of um, a haven of laissez-faire governance and, and, and sort of free-ranging laissez-faire, you know, liberal capitalism. Um, but actually, it's not. The way Hong Kong is run is, is incredibly, um, um, has, is an incredibly intrusive state. And the way that the, the government handles just all aspects of, of daily life here is, is, is very, um, 
overmanaged. Um, and so, you know, you find that, you know, if the government sort of steps back and leaves some space for civil society to, to engage with many of these issues, the solutions that society comes up for itself are much better. Um, now, you know, if we see a turn in that direction, less interference from the government in Beijing, that might be good for Hong Kong too. Um, but all these, it I, I does feel like, and I think this is perhaps what, you, what you're alluding to, it does feel like all of these questions are sort of up for debate again in Hong Kong, that this protest movement has perhaps opened up a space for these issues to be reopened and, and reconsidered um, and, and, and possibly for things to turn in a slightly different direction. And if that were the case, I think that would be a, a very positive outcome. I'm just terrified that we've run out of carrots, so we only have sticks. Um, in terms of some of the larger trends uh, that people like Adam Tooze are warning us about that, you know, in a neoliberal world, when you run out of carrots, all you have are sticks. The last question I wanted to ask, because I've been appalled uh, by more left-wing uh, media, things like Jacobin and Navarra, but even The Guardian, I think, has done a poor job on this. When we look at um, similar protests, perhaps, like the Gilets Jaunes, um, or the protests recently in Brazil, where uh, governments are were elected democratically but are behaving in ways that are not really responsive to the populace. Uh, similar to Hong Kong, where they oftentimes have to deal with policies that they don't support um, because of the structure of its government, and the only recourse is protest. Do you see any similarities to what's going on in Hong Kong to, uh, globally with protest movements? And if so, what would these protests and the demands of these protesters have to say to one another about the similarities that have caused them to take to the streets? Uh, you, you know what? That, that's a, a really great question, which I've been thinking about myself um, and haven't yet <laughs> reached an answer on. Um, and, and like you, I see you know these protest movements around the world um, and, and of course, see what's happening in, in my own home in Hong Kong and wonder what, what is the common thread among them in the same way that I, I try to, I wonder sort of, you know, much to my consternation and without really any clear answer, what's the common thread tying together all the, the, the trends in the opposite direction, the illiberal trends and the, the sort of extremism on the right um, that seems to, again, have a common thread throughout the world, um, you know, at this moment in time. And what I really wonder, and, and maybe this is, um, the answer to both of those questions is that uh, is what we're seeing on a on a grand scale, um, and I'm not the first person to suggest this, but you know what we're seeing on a grand scale the 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 fruits of the 2008 financial crisis is gradually manifesting, you know, through societies you know over the past you know ten or more years in the in that they didn't res result in, a, in in an outburst you know at that time, but has slowly festered um, the underlying issues remaining unaddressed and coming out. Um, on both the left and the right in, in different ways. Um, other than that, in terms of common themes, I, you know, without sort of digging in more deeply, I, I don't have a more informed view, but it's certainly something that, you know, you know would, would warrant a, you know, a deeper investigation. Anthony, this was a fascinating chat, and I hope it gives um, a global audience as well as an audience in Hong Kong a deep analysis into some of the tensions that are going on. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. And thanks for your um, really informed and, and super insightful questions. It's been a great discussion. I appreciate it.